I know uh, many of you are watching that miniseries, I think it's on Netflix, called The Crown. Right? It's based on an award-winning play that was written about, it, it's following the life of Queen Elizabeth II from 1940, about she's 25 years old when she takes the throne all the way in, into the present. And, and I think a lot of people like to watch that because, hey, it's, it's the royal family for, for generations, for decades. I mean, this, right, this is the top of the food chain for us. This is where really good breeding ends up, huh, right? This is the, the highest expression of our evolution is this royal family. And, and then you're watching it and you realize, wow, there's a lot of personal intrigue going on here and, and strange relational things taking place. And again, the political rivalries are kind of fun and all, but if you are part of watching The Crown, you know this, that at the end of an episode, there's a race to the internet to feverishly decide, ask the question, is that, is that true? Did those things really happen? Because... You think, you would think that being royalty, they'd have a different, I don't know, standard of living, not financially, but ethically, and, and they don't seem to. I mean, it's just like you're jumping from scandal to scandal to scandal. I mean, Melinda watches it, and I just sometimes will go, oh, you, you're watching that swamp people thing again? Those guys will do anything. No, I'm watching The Crown. Oh, well, they'll do anything as well. And so, no, we, I, think, I think people enjoy this series because there's an intuitive sense, a belief that, hey, if they're royal, shouldn't they act like royalty? Yes, they should. If you're royal, you should act like royalty. You should have family practices. And that's what we're going to look at today. The, your family should determine your code of conduct. And we're going to look at a passage today where family practices is a pretty simple outline. We're going to look at family, what's your family, and practices, what are your practices. That's the outline. We're in a series called Guide. We're looking at uh, three books that Paul wrote to two men, Timothy and Titus, and he was guiding them in how to be ministers like you our ministers and me like a pastor, and he's showing them how to become like Christ in all of life and how to bring other people along with them as they are becoming like Christ in all of life. In the first week, he said, you're going to need courage because there's a lot to be afraid of out there, and you have to be tied to the power of God to overcome those. He said, you're going to need endurance because the race is long and it's hard. You'll need to endure suffering all the way to the end. Today, we look at family practices. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it is the heart of the, all three of those pastoral, what are called the pastoral epistles. The, this, in this section right here, Paul is going to define what, is, what family. What family are we part of? Because our lives, from as early as we can remember to probably our present, our lives, our actions, our choices are determined by our identity. Our identity. How we see ourselves, how we define ourselves, that affects how we act. And that's what he's going to be going after here today is our, the, the whole idea of identity. Because if you, if you look at it, identity, who you think you are, it's going to affect your thinking. Your thinking will affect your behavior. So Paul goes right at what is our identity according to God. Here's how he starts the, this section of Scripture in verse 14 and 15. 
Although I hope to come see you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. There's the practices. This is how you should act, knowing that your identity is being defined by God. And how is that definition? Here's, some, here's three uh, phrases. You should act, conduct yourselves, how you should conduct themselves in God's household, which is this church of the living God the pillar and the foundation of truth. That's your name. You wear that. Let's look at those. Three things, three ways God sees you and me. First, God's household, house, family is the point. God's family. We are born again into a new family. It says in the Bible, this is absurd, especially if you read a lot of the Older Testament, that the The New Testament says to call God the eternal creator of all things, Abba, which translates daddy. Such an intimate phrase and term. He says, no, no, no. You are in a new family. You can call him daddy. And just like you saw, I don't know if you noticed it in the video, every male, that's your brother. Every female, that's your sister. Because now we are part of an uber royal family, and we're going to build on that foundation of we should act like it. We're part of God's household. We're part of God's family. The second phrase that he uses is the church of the living God. In Greek, the word church literally means the called out ones. And so when you are part of God's family, you, you, got, you were able to get to that place because you heard the voice of God calling you. And you responded. Jesus says, the the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And we are called out for a purpose because God called and we heard. And it says the living God, the idea is that he is still ruling and and, and, and has authority over our lives. We're part of God's family. We're part of the church of the living God. And the last one is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. You feel safe in this building? You should, but not because of the beautiful stone and stucco and the windows and those sorts of things. You're safe in here, I assure you, because there's a, we're, we're built on top of a two-foot reinforced concrete slab. And on that slab were 24-inch I-beam pillars that hold up 18-inch joists, steel reinforced I-beam joists. And while the outside is rather pretty, the foundation and those pillars is what keeps us strong. Paul is saying here, when God sees you, he sees you as the foundation, as the pillars of the truth that he has lent us. He would entrust us to that degree. Paul is saying, you and me, our identity, it's supposed to be tied up in this, that we are part of God's family, we have been called out by the living God, that he sees us so valuable that we would be the foundation and the pillars of things that God has defined to be right and real and true. And how did we get here, (laughs) right? Well, the next section of scripture, he talks about how we get here. We get here through a common confession. You get here by understanding these phrases. And so in verse 16, he says, without question, okay, this is a great mystery of our faith from which true godliness springs. 
Okay, we're going to take this apart a little bit first. The great mystery, it's not a mystery to us. It's a 2,000-year-old it's, it's mystery that starts back to Abraham, and, we don't, and, and the, the mystery is how is God going to possibly reconcile man to himself? How could that even happen? That's the great mystery. The mystery is the story of Jesus Christ. The mystery is the gospel. So it says here, it says, we, 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 are, uh, we hold this great mystery in faith. And we under, when we understand that great mystery, two things happen. When we grasp it, understand it, two things happen. One, we become part of his family with a new identity. And two, according to this passage, true godliness springs forth. It causes goodness and good conduct to happen. Why? Because new identity needs to, leads to new thinking, leads to new actions. So it's, it's this great mystery. And so now he's going to just go through and quote a hymn, which is the great mystery. It, it's, uh, think of it as a catechism. Think of it as, as a vow. Okay? This is what the great mystery is. Here it goes. And, and watch it. I'm sorry. Before Listen for how Jesus Christ is playing this unique role. All right, he has no rival, and he will be the one that can reconcile heaven and earth, God and man. And so in this hymn, he's going to ping pong back and forth between things on earth and things in heaven. Physical things, spiritual things like angels. Just want you to understand what's happening here, okay? Here's the, here's the great mystery that we grasp and understand. One, that he appeared in the flesh. When he was born, when he lived on the planet, when he died. Next, he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. Next, as seen by angels. In that context, he's talking about the angels witnessed the resurrection. He says to the ladies, why are you seeking the living amongst the dead? The next phrase, was preached among the nations. Right, those people that were followers of Christ, they went out and told everyone. And it took, the next one, we, was believed on in the world. And then finally, he was taken up in glory. He was ascended into heaven. He is sit at the right hand of the Father where now he builds his church, that's us, intercedes for us, and then finally waits for the day of, of judgment that he will make all things right. That's the great mystery. That's what we believe, that Jesus reconciled us to heaven. Pascal said, uh, it is the nature of man that he cannot reach up into heaven, but it is the love of God that he would bend down and pull him up. And that's why we have nothing in common with so many people from different skin color and different language and different dialects and different food because they're from different families. Nothing overlaps. We have everything in common with men and women around the world because we are confident of this one creed. We have this one thing in common, and this one thing is everything. And that's why you can go to any corner of the world and feel that they are brothers and sisters of yours because everywhere you go, you hear the song, he makes beautiful things out of dust. I was dust. You too? He made me beautiful. That's what we have in common. And because of that new identity, it says, godliness springs forth. Godliness just exudes from you because you have new identity, new beliefs, right? And new actions that go along with that. Now, if you, if you, this sounds, this sounds a little bit, uh, I guess, esoteric or distant. 
it's, it's actually not as distant as you might think, that you could change just by simply believing something like a creed, it could change your identity, which would change your thinking and change your actions. Let me give you a story. It's common. Okay. Anywhere between 30 and 35 years ago, I was married. <clears throat> On September 14th, I know that part of it. On September 14th, I was married. On September 25th, I was back in school, in graduate school, and we were having chapel that day, and a, and a young lady was telling her, the story of how she ended up at the seminary where I was attending, and she talked about how she spent an entire year in Switzerland, no, it gets better, with Francis Schaeffer. Now, he's gone, but he was a, he was a big deal back then. And I thought, when she was talking, I'm going to meet her. And I'm going to get to know her. This girl's awesome. And so I saw her a little bit later on in the day, and she was on the other side of the courtyard. And so I kind of started fast walking, not to cause too much attention to myself, and getting over to her. And boom, that's when it hit me. Hey, you're not single Matt anymore. You're married Matt. You remember, you walked down an aisle, you said some vows, you said a creed. It was kind of like a hymn between God and these many witnesses, and then you got a new identity. You started a whole new family, a whole new way of thinking, which is bringing about a whole new kind of conduct. So erase the program single mat. We didn't meet because I made a vow based on beliefs that changed my identity as a married man, that changed my family status, that changed my conduct. That's the point Paul's making here. That's the, Paul, that's, that's the point. It, you, you, and here's the thing. You have to believe what God says about you, not what you believe about yourself or the tapes that you're playing in your head. You know why God says, you know, he makes beautiful things out of dust? You know why God says you're beautiful? Because he says so. What if you don't believe that? Who cares? What do you care? God says so. God says these things about you, right? That you're called by him to his holy church, right? You're part of his family, that you're the pillar and the foundation of truth. So here's a quick application before we move on to the next part. Have you made that declaration? Have you made right, that choice to believe these things and all that they mean? You want to be part of a new family? You want to be part of a new thing? You want to trade up? What that means is transferring your faith on what you believe to be a way of making it right with God to one that says, I'm going to let Jesus do all that for me. I'm coming at you really fast if this is new material, and I'd like for you to consider just filling out the form in, this, in our bulletin and check the box that says you'd be interested in knowing more about God. The big, so you do that. The, the idea here is the, the church is us together, the way God sees us, is we're, we're the ones that are called out for a purpose. We are not a social worker group. We're not a charity group. We're a family, a church, a foundation. And we grasp these things because in doing so, it changes the way we think and the way we behave. It's godliness springs forth. Family. What family? The family of God practices what practices. 
In this passage, we go to 1 Samuel, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 6, where the other one was the heart of the epistles. This is the climax of these three epistles. This is a charge that's like no other charge that Paul will make in any other book. It starts off in glory. He says, in the English translation, it'll say, but you, but in Greek, it starts with the you. You, man of God, he calls Timothy. You, man of God. And listen, friends, that's a title that only a few Old Testament saints were able to bear. And he's calling us that. He's going to start off with identifying our identity, you, woman of God. Let's talk. And that's what he does. Let's, you, woman of God, man of God. Look at the four verbs. I highlighted those on the screen for you. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what he's telling us to do. Let's look at these. This is how we practice. These are the practices. The first one, that first verb is flee. 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 He was talking about the previous paragraph about flee materialism and greed. It means, generally, it means flee the sewer. We get the word from this Greek word, we get the word fugitive. The idea is we are being hunted and pursued relentlessly. And he says, run from the world, right? This, and, and who's the Old Testament saint known for his track shoes? Joseph, right? He, he, was, he was sexually harassed and with an attempted sexual assault by his boss's wife. And his ability to work through that was, I am out of here. He ran, and he ran because he knew if he stayed, he would fail. He would rather go to prison, sinless, than stay there and make a wreck of his life. And so flee, flee the world, flee the sewage. If you have friends and celebrate recovery, ask them. They'll tell you they're on to this. The first step is this sewage, whatever it is in your life, it's stronger than you. It's bigger than you. It kicks you across the playground and takes your lunch money. Here's how you do deal with that. Flee, run, don't wink, don't flirt, don't date this thing, run away. That's his first uh, declaration. The second one is to pursue. You want to go after something, he says? Here's a list of attributes. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. I feel those are fairly self-explanatory. Here's what we say. Here's how we summarize. Become like Christ in all of life. You want to pursue something? Pursue becoming like Christ in all of life. As a husband or wife, as an employee or employer, as a great citizen, as a soccer coach, be like Christ in all of life. That's the second thing. He says flee, and then he says pursue, and I love this next one, fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Literally, it says, agonize the good agony of faith. That's, that's descriptive, isn't it? I, I, I love that Paul's bringing this up, that it's a fight, because I feel like it's a fight for me. I mean, in the, in the context of, of fleeing, I feel like a fugitive, being hunted down at every turn by the world around me. And I just, friends, there's so many times I, just, uh, I give up, just take me in, I'm done. It's easier to quit. I get tired of the fight that I'm in just following Christ and becoming like and pursuing being like Christ in all of life. I, am, I, become, it's, I feel like this, in my experience, is like a, it's not like a 
not like a bar fight. It's more like a prison fight. There are no rules to this. I become, maybe you're there too. Have you, have you, have you felt like you've been to the beach of the Red Sea for the last time? Like in front of you is death and behind you is death and you're stuck there and the only way out is for God to rescue you. The only way out is for you to have faith in God's power. Been to that beach. I think I have a timeshare there. I wish I wouldn't keep going. I, I get tired of, of the constant refining that he does in my life. I, I, have, I have plans and goals. And God just doesn't care. <laughs> and I feel like I'm in a fight about that. I get tired of apologizing. I feel like I'm having to fight to ask for forgiveness again. And Paul is saying here, yeah, if it feels like a fight, it should. Fight the good fight of faith. Agonize the good agony. Yeah, you got it. Now get back, quit whining, and get back in the ring. He says, flee. He says, pursue. He says, fight. And the last thing here, he says, take hold. He says, look, look what he says. Take hold the eternal life for which you were called. Look, look at the timing here. When you were made, when you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses, you remember, what, you remember when this was all new? You remember before you were bludgeoned and had scar tissue? You remember how happy that whole, you remember that confession that you made at your baptism or early on? Yeah, you take hold of that faith. Because you're growing weak. Take hold of that. The salvation faith, it's, it's in some respect uh, static. God holds that. That's a passive thing. But this part he's saying take hold of, that's the dynamic part. That's depending upon you and me. I think this, can, this will help us make sense of this. There's a, a physicist, and I think even an astrophysicist in America, and he wrote a best-selling book a few years ago called Einstein's Dreams. And in it, each chapter, Einstein has a dream every night, and it's about the alternate universes that could exist because of the theory of relativity and time. I know, it sounds, it's a better book than what I just said. So, so every chapter is a different reality. And one reality is that everyone lives forever. And here's what's interesting, he says. The whole planet population is divided into just two people, right? The nows and the laters. You're going to live forever forever. There's the nows and the laters. And the now people, man, they take hold of this whole thing that we're going to live forever. They fight for everything they want. They fight long and hard because they have forever to do it. They pursue new challenges. They become, they, they, they become mechanics and, and cooks and surgeons and lawyers. You know why? Because they can take the time to do that, right? They learn how to face their fear and their hardships because time will heal those things. And so they live forever. Those are the nows. The laters, they figure, you know what? I'm going to live forever. So you know what? Later on, I'm going to get around to seeing some things and experiencing life and learning how to love and learning how to fight. That, that'll come later. And they never live forever. 
And Paul's saying here, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a member of the family, as a part of the foundation and the pillars of what it is to be a follower of Jesus with that identity, he says, you should be a now type person. Take hold of the calling that you've been given, right? That you should put your faith to the test, ever wanting more. Fight. Fight the good fight. This is the only chance to really learn how to taste your own own blood and enjoy this thing, right? You pursue the challenges of life. You face your fears because you can. You, you, You enjoy dragging the shame of your life out into the open so that you can watch it wither and die because it has no power in the light. That's a now type person. That's what Paul is saying. That's what it means to be enjoying the new identity of who you are. That's Paul's command. That's his charge. As a matter of fact, Paul ends this whole section of Scripture, this is why it's called the climax of these, with a charge. There's nothing like this. It's his strongest exhortation, and you need to brace yourself. This is Paul's declaration that you should live up to the new identity that you have. Here's what he says in verse 13 of chapter 6. Look how he says, who's watching us? Look, how, who, look who's watching us. The fullness of the new identity in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. He says this, I charge you to keep this command without a spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. Here we go. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and the might forever. Amen. Take that. How about we all just pick us up some squirt guns and go charge the gates of hell? They will not prevail against this kind of declaration, this sort of pronouncement for us. We are to live who we are. This is how God sees us, a household of God, called out to his glorious church, pillar and foundation. This confession that we have about his existence, this is life-changing. It changes our identity, how God sees us. And if you look, it's, what's interesting here is look, by the way, you know, we're talking about guiding people and what it means to be discipling someone. What's Paul doing? He's merely speaking into Timothy and Titus' life what is true. Wouldn't it be great if we had a mirror and it was a God-sent mirror to Matt from God. And every time I held it up, I would not see myself for who I see myself to be, but who God sees me to be. That mirror is the Bible. And maybe if I stared at it long enough, I'd start believing that. And it would change the way I think. And then godliness would spring forward. Here's what good discipleship is. Here's how to be a good guide. You just hold up the Bible. You just hold up the mirror. That's all Paul's doing. Hey, Timothy, all this stuff is already true. It's already real. No, doesn't matter what you think. This is true. That's what Paul's saying. That's how we're supposed to live. 
When I was, uh, I kept saying this passage this week, and I was trying to get my hand around, my head around, uh, especially the, the graphic nature of the verbs in this. They're violent. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold. I charge you. I thought about a really great fight scene. Some of you can appreciate it's from uh, Cool Hand Luke. It's an old movie. And uh, Luke is uh, Paul Newman, and he is sent to uh, like a, a, a jail or prison work camp. And whenever you, if fellow prisoners were ever having a place of disagreement, they would just, on Saturday, they'd put 20-ounce mitts, those are big gloves, and they just let them slug it out. Now, now Paul Newman, the point of this is Paul Newman is, is 5'10", about 150 pounds. He's representing like the ideal man, okay? Anyone? No? 5'8", <laughs> 150? That's what I do. So... And then he's going up against this guy named BG, and he's 6'4", 210. And they're just going to slug it out. Everybody loves Saturday morning fights. All the prisoners come out to see this. They circle around, make the ring. All the guards make sure they can watch and observe this. And so here is Luke versus BG. It really wasn't much of a fight. BG knocks Luke down eight times before he even, Luke even lands a punch. And after a while, Luke starts off as no one really likes him because he's so good looking. And, and towards the end, people are saying, after he's been knocked down so many times, they're saying, look, look, Luke, just stay down. No one's going to fall you. Okay, he's just so much bigger than you. You don't have a chance. He keeps getting back up. And he gets knocked down a couple more times. And, and the prisoners are getting a little bit annoyed and, and nauseous. And they start, some of them start walking away. And one of them grabs and says, look, Luke, let him hit you in the nose. It'll be a big bleeder. And then the guards will stop it. Don't let him hit you anymore. Stay down. He gets back up. He's, he's completely exhausted from being pummeled. And then finally he takes just a roundhouse ride at DG and, and, and BG and misses. And, and BG just like lets him go over his shoulders and then puts him on the ground on his knees. And they're both on their knees together. And BG's like, we're done now, right? And Luke hits him in the face. So BG backhands him into the ground and says, you're done. Don't get up. You beat. And Luke said, you're going to have to kill me. And he crawls to his knees and then he stands up again. Couple, four wild punches that never even hit the air in front of him. Poor BG can't take this anymore. And so he just starts walking back to the barracks. And Luke hits him in the back with what's left over of his strength, and everybody leaves. And Luke is standing in the courtyard all by himself. He doesn't even have the strength to lift up his hands to say he won. That's a great fight scene, just surviving it. I think of that fight scene, and I think of this passage, because that's what living by faith looks like. It means getting back up when you want to stay down, when other people say you ought to stay down. And I know some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but you will. The words that are used in this passage are pursue and fight and take hold and I charge you. Those are violent, aggressive verbs about the life of the Christian. 
And it's easy, to, it's easy to go down and stay down. All you have to do is curse God and die, says Job's wife. Or you could be like Peter who denies him and then gets back in the ministry after he's restored. The Christian life is not easy. The life of faith is a bar fight. No, it's, it's a prison fight. You, man of God, keep fighting. You, woman, daughter of the king, you get back in there. I know some of you have grown weary of responsibility, of the burden of leadership. You've been hurt by a church. Maybe you got hurt by this church. We're plenty able to do that. And you think, you know what? I mean, you're, you're, you can hear it. Just stay down. It's not your fault. You, you got a bloody nose. Now you don't have to do anything. And so you re- relegate yourself to passivity, and you'll just be a spectator. Really? Is that the way you want to live the only life? That's not what Paul says. He says, flee, pursue, agonize the agony of faith. Take hold, I charge you, he says. Come on. Get back into this fight. That's what Paul tells us to do. All because... We're royalty. It's who we are. It's the way we think, and therefore, it's the way we live. Would you bow your heads? I'd like to say something to you. As a pastor of the Church of the Living God, And as an elder, with all the authority and the responsibility that that holds, I say to you, Grace Covenant Church, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and Jesus Christ, I charge you, I charge you to keep this command that you become like Christ in all of life, all the way until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about when he wants to, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no man can see his face and live, to him be the honor and the might forever. He has adopted us and called us children. He has made us his sons and daughters. Let us live accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.